Hi, I'm Sandra Buchanan and ironshortener.net, ironshortener broadcast. I welcome all my viewers, listeners, for those who are on the podcast and Vimeo and Facebook live on www.ironshortener.net. Welcome to, I call this Super Tuesday, Amazing Tuesday. And I have a great man of God here, Dr. Jeff Mancas, board certified retired physician. How are you, sir? I'm okay. And how are you today? I'm well. So um, we're excited to have you back, Dr. Mancash. You're no stranger to Iron Sharpener. And we have gotten great reviews that we love your videos. Your information is on point and, and you're very professional. So um, I'm just grateful. So today uh, we want to talk about the you know GI health and the type different types of cancer, pancreatic cancer and stuff like that, and prostate cancer. So wherever you want to start, sir, will it will be interactive conversation? Okay. Well, I, I'll start by saying, as I've said before, that uh, cancer is something that is a fundamental uh, change in the body. Uh, and an understanding of cancer is something that eludes uh, medical science. We have still not understood what the nature of cancer is. We know that cancer is a disease of cells and that uh, the body is made up of organs. The organs are made up of tissues and the tissues are made up of cells. So to understand cancer means that one would have to understand a cell, what makes a cell work the way it does, how do cells interact with each other, and what signals do cells respond to. Uh, this is all very fundamental stuff, and because it's so fundamental, it eludes easy de determination as to what's going on, because it gets back to the heart of the matter, which is the nature of uh, organisms and the nature of biology. And so to understand cancer means one has to understand the cell. And so uh, we've come a long way in trying to understand how cells interact with each other and what may affect cells, uh, what we do may affect them and what they do may affect us, but we still have a long way to go. And that's why uh, despite the many years that cancer has been around, I would say at least 100 years, our understanding of the basic nature of cancer is elusive and remains not well understood. Because of the advances of cell biology and its translation into medical care and medical incentives and medical initiatives, more and more basic science is applied to cells to understand uh, what it is about cancer that uh, is so unique and the understanding that within a cancer there are many different types of cells so not all cells in a cancer in a given cancer are cancerous and among the cancerous cells some are more cancerous than others uh, so that we know. What we don't know is why does a cancer occur to begin with? 
because of the increasing understanding of the immune immunologic system, immunology, and the relationship of antigens and antibodies, which is basically proteins that are found within cells and their body's reaction to the presence of these proteins, which are called antibodies, we are we have developing an increasing ability to kill and destroy cancer cells by understanding that relationship of cancer cells and what our body is trying to do to get rid of cancer. Obviously, when one has a cancer, one has to be thinking about when a person has a cancer, why did I get it? How did I get it? Did, was there something I did or something I didn't do? Uh, and these are questions that remain not fully understood. Uh, where we've come a long way is the ability to detect cancer and also the ability to detect the cancer early by using various modalities of diagnostic uh, abilities to know about cancer in terms of uh, cell biology, blood tests, and radiology, x-rays, and x-ray applications. So now we can spend more time, uh, if we wish, screening people for cancer. Uh, and that's uh, where advances are being made. So a person comes to the doctor, and then the doctor and or the patient want to undergo a series of tests to determine whether or not a given individual already has or may develop a certain type of cancer. So these cancer screening tools are increasingly being used to help people find out about what their potential for cancer is. It's a, it's a double-edged sword because if you explore that, then uh, you may find out that you may already have or be potentially get a cancer that you're not even aware that you have in terms of any symptoms. So this becomes an issue. Should everybody have an MRI scan? Should everybody have a CAT scan? Uh, obviously, this all costs money. And hospitals and clinics want the best equipment available. Uh, and they need uh, to have people who read these studies. Uh, and the same thing with the laboratory. You have tests that are being done. How accurate are the tests? Are there false positives where the test uh, looks like there's something that may not be right? And then after a number of things are done, it turns out that nothing can be found that's wrong. There are false negatives. The test says everything's okay, and the person ends up having a cancer. So uh, within the laboratory, there are there's a the concern of sensitivity. How often is a negative test negative or positivity? How often, or as it's called, specificity. Sensitivity is how often a test that's negative is negative, and specificity is how often is a positive test truly positive. And those are the benchmarks by which we determine the accuracy of a given test. So each organ can potentially have cancer in it. And as I've said, uh, different types of cancer may be found in a given organ. And within that cancer, there's a heterogeneous population 
of cancer cells. Some may be more cancerous than others. So if a person gets exposed to certain therapies and some cancer cells are killed, not all the cancer cells may be killed. So that remains at this point an unknown. What are the what are the elements in fighting cancer that determine how successful uh, killing the cancer will be? In the past, cancer had been treated by blanket blitzkrieg therapy. You basically gave a patient uh, certain cellular poisons that were designed to kill off the, if you wish, ability of cells to reproduce. In so doing, you not only killed off the cancer cells, but you also killed off healthy cells. And as a result, many patients would develop side effects from uh, various forms of chemotherapy, or that is drug therapy designed to kill cancer. In addition, uh, can uh, cancer cells have been treated with radiation where the person gets exposed to radiation which burns or kills off cancer. And so that is where things have been for many, many years. The exciting thing about cancer these days is the ability to link the treatment of cancer and the killing of cancer cells to the antigen antibody or lock and key concept. And so if any particular tissue has proteins in it, once you know what those proteins might be, or you know the structure of the protein, and you expose a given individual with a healthy immune system or immune system to, the, to that type of protein, then antibodies are made by the host cell to fight off or to deal with that particular uh, abnormal protein. And so antigen antibody complexes have been the future of what our cancer therapy is going to be about. No longer will we be giving blanket blitzkrieg therapy to kill off cancer by killing off healthy cells and non-healthy cells, but we're going to focus our efforts very, very specifically, like a laser, on a specific relationship between antibodies against uh, the cancer cells. And to do that, you have to know what the nature of the cancer cells are, what is abnormal about them, and what can be used in a person's immune system to develop antibodies for those cancer proteins and destroy them. And that is the future of a lot of cancer therapy these days. There are what are called immune checkpoint inhibitors, different means available to, uh, if you wish, uh, use our innate immune system and present in all, all animals, including humans, to our advantage to uh, develop a series of proteins or antibodies that attack a specific antigen or antigens in a given cancer cell. So that's kind of an overview of where cancer is and I'm not a cancer doctor, I'm not an oncologist. Uh, but this is where things are heading. And so many of the research laboratories and hospitals in the, at least in the Northeast, Roswell Park in uh, Buffalo, the Leahy Clinic 
in Boston, Sloan Kettering Hospital in New York City, have been and continue to be places where these types of therapies are being developed. People are being subjected to these therapies in an experimental way in an attempt to uh, get rid of the cancer. Now, how do we detect whether a cancer may or may not be responding? Well, there are different therapy, there are different modalities. The most common usually is radiologic techniques, MRIs, CAT scans. Of course, one recognizes that these x-ray studies are limited by the whatever it is they can detect. So the smaller the thing is, the more difficult it might be to show up on a study. So the study may appear to be negative, and there may still be a cancer there. Uh, and that's always a question as to how accurate is a given modality in terms of diagnosis to really detect whether something's there or not. Uh, a cancer in the breast or a cancer in the prostate or whatever may have been there for several years, but, but eluded detection because it was too small to show up. And so one has to be aware of the limitations of diagnostic modalities in being able to diagnose cancer, let alone treat it. Because oh, if you can't see it, you can't do anything about it. And that remains the issue of screening. If you are trying to detect something that you can't see, what can you use to help you figure out whether a person has or is going to get cancer? There are genetic testings. Uh, we know that by the research that's been done, that certain cancers have certain abnormal genetics. We know that, as I said, cancer is really a pro fundamental disturbed process involving genetics, where there are disturbance in the genes of the cancer cells making them cancerous, and the proteins they produce, and the body's response to the presence of these abnormal cells. So one can imagine how complex this uh, various series of events are in being able to determine whether a person has a cancer, whether the cancer is going to get bigger or not, what therapies should be used to treat the cancer, and what do we use to follow whether the cancer is adequately treated or not. Will it come back? Will it spread to other organs? So cancer not only develops in a particular organ, and as I said, there are different types of cancer in a given organ and different degrees of malignancy in a given cancer. But in addition, cancer cells spread into other organs through the bloodstream, through the lymphatics, which is a separate system uh, involving fluid that uh, bathes the tissues and the cells. And so if the cancer cell develops in a certain organ, it can, can then spread simply by virtue of chance to uh, other tissues by virtue of being carried there by the bloodstream or by the lymphatic system. And now a person who started with a cancer in one organ ends up with cancer, the same cancer spread to other organs. Dr. Mancast, I do have a question for you. So before the ca cancer spreads, it probably reaches stage four, right? There are stages of cancer and well, stage four, stage four in most cancers, and there are staging systems, as you've just alluded to. So there are systems uh, in place that try to determine how involved a cancer is in a given organ. 
stage four generally represents metastatic spread. So okay. metastasis, metastasis refers to the colony of cancer cells that have developed in different organs coming originally from a cancer in a given organ. So cancer from the colon can go to the liver, breast cancer can go to the bone, prostate cancer can spread to the local tissues or spread to bone. If left untreated. Why certain cancer right? cells, why certain cancer cells spread to certain organs is another thing we don't know. Why do certain cancer cells have a predilection to go to certain tissues? It, that remains, again, a fundamental question that is not well understood. Go also, ahead. you mentioned um, some cancers are spread through the blood and some are spread by the lymphatic system. Do we know why it goes either way? It, we, we, those are fun. I said, again, it, it goes back to what I said earlier. It goes back to the fundamental understanding of cancer. And we do not, as far as okay. I know, there are basic science people who are doing research in this. Uh, cancer cells, uh, if you wish, they're not stupid. They seem to have an innate ability to spread, to do what they do. Why they do that probably has to do with the genetics of those cancers. The genes in those cancer cells tell them what they have to do. Why they do that and what the nature of that genetic mechanism is I think at this point remains elusive. But remember, we've come a long way from where we were uh, in recognizing cancer uh, as being an abnormal growth in a given organ. So we're now coning down on and targeting the cellular mechani the mechanisms within the cells that determine what makes a cell cancerous. Okay, so I have three things I would like you to cover today. Um, pancreatic cancer cancer of the guts um the you know um and then a little bit about prostate and i think those three will cover this session well, again once you accept once you understand that a given organ is what it is uh then almost every organ has the capacity to get cancer for example we know that sharks the the shark uh, fish does not seem to get cancer uh, in any of its natural history, whatever the shark. So that's an interesting concept that in that life of that animal or that group of animals, they don't seem to be able to get can get cancer. The question is, why is that that sharks seem to be being able to avoid any kind of cancer as opposed to other fish or other animals? So that remains of interest and again being looked at because a lot of the things that happen in medicine are the result of basic science and basic science uh, experiments come about as a result of if you wish fortuitous uh, serendipity so a given individual in a laboratory sees something that he or she uh, doesn't doesn't seem to make sense and calls in a colleague and says look at this and so a discovery is made totally unexpected, which then leads to the discovery of something that can become useful later on. And a lot of the things that go on in medical science are the result of serendipity and good luck. And that's something to understand because uh, basically focusing, uh, focusing research 
on given modalities isn't always productive. Sometimes we find out things simply by virtue of fortune, or good fortune or chance, and the right person was present at the right time, and that played a role in the development of a certain modality. So I just think these, these concepts that I'm trying to go over with you are very important in understanding the limitations of what it is we expect from therapy, from the doctors, and from the modalities to pick up and to treat these cancers. One size does not fit all. One cancer is not the same for everybody. That's very important. When a person's sick and they have cancer, they want to get better. They want the cancer out of them. And so depending on who it is they're seeing, what kind of therapy they're having, and the interaction between the patient, the doctors, and the specialists, and the types of modalities of diagnosis, many things can go on. Uh, and sometimes patients are disappointed because they're not getting, or their families are disappointed because there is no given answer. And people perish and they die before uh, the correct determination was made. And that's a tragedy. And many, many millions of people have died over the years because of the inability of cancer to be fully understood and or treated. And that's something, again, to be aware of because everybody wants, it's black, they want black and white. But as you know, uh, I have gray hair. I assume you have some too. A lot of things in the world are gray. They're not black and they're not white. As far as specific organs, the prostate is a walnut-sized gland that sits at the base of the urinary bladder in men. Uh, it is designed to produce certain secretions or proteins that allow sperm to become fertile. So if you don't, if a man did not have a prostate gland, he would not be able to have children. Even if he's making sperm, the sperm require the presence of the prostate, <coughs> excuse me, to produce certain secretions from the prostate to enable the sperm to fertilize eggs. As men get older, usually starting in their 40s, because of hormonal changes. So women are not the only people who undergo hormonal change. Men do as well, what's called the change of life. So if you ask any man, he will tell you that once he reaches the age of 40, his ability to urinate will change. Generally, men will urinate more frequently, generally in the evening the stream of the urination will be less strong. And these are the changes that occur in the natural history of a man as he gets older. The prostate begins to enlarge. The prostate sits at the base of the urinary bladder, and through the urinary bladder is a tube that extends from the base of the bladder through the penis, called the urethra. And the urethra will be squeezed by an enlarged prostate. So as the prostate gets larger, it squeezes the tube or the urethra, and therefore the bladder tends to fill up with urine and doesn't empty very readily. And the amount of emptying it does is less than it used to. So most men will tell the doctor, I can't pee the way I once did. And I have to get up at night and pee several times. This is almost universally the fact present in almost all men. 
question is, why do some men uh, develop an enlarged prostate and other men don't? Is it diet? Is it genetics? Is it the environment? Is it toxins? I don't think that's fully understood. Uh, there is a genetic tendency in most families with men. Uh, if your dad had an enlarged prostate, you probably may have one too. Uh, there is a difference between prostate cancer and enlarged prostate. Enlarged prostate uh, is initialed BPH, benign prostate hypertrophy. Hypertrophy means enlargement. So the prostate has within it various tissues, including muscles, smooth muscles, which help the prostate to squeeze out the secretions uh, when, a per when a man ejaculates. So as a man gets older, the prostate gland tends to enlarge. And, that's, uh, and some of the muscles in the prostate tend to wither away. So now you have an enlarged prostate with uh, various tissues, but the smooth muscles tend to not be that strong. So the prostate tends to get bigger. Uh, when a man is examined by a doctor regarding the prostate, uh, usually besides blood tests, uh, a finger is inserted in the anus rectum by a examining doctor, and the doctor is feeling the contour the contour of the prostate against the examining finger. The examining finger only examines part of the prostate because part of the prostate is not amenable to being felt. It's in front of the pubic bone, and you cannot feel that. Part of the prostate, however, uh, is approachable through the rectum. So when a finger is inserted in the rectum, the examiner can feel the contour of the prostate as it's covered by the lining of the rectum. And as the rectum, as the uh, examining finger feels the prostate, one feels to see is it smooth when one has a finger in there, or is it bumpy or lumpy? Are there lumps? Are there bumps? Are there nodules or something hard? So these are often the um, basic modalities of physical examination and attempt to determine something something about the prostate so uh, knowing the size of the prostate uh, and urologists will often tell the doctor if the urologist is the doctor specialist in the urinary tract and often gets to see men with prostate issues they'll tell them the size of the prostate 20 grams 30 grams etc and then uh, the determination is is this prostate benign or malignant so this is where, uh, besides feeling the part of the prostate, is blood tests, such as the PSA, prostate-specific antigen. This is a test when it was first found out that certain proteins are released by the prostate and that if a person, if a man has prostate cancer, the PSA level should go up. If a man doesn't have prostate cancer, the PSA level will remain low. However, with time, it's been shown that uh, the PSA can go up in benign conditions, such as an enlarged or inflamed prostate, and it may not necessarily represent prostate cancer. And other times, the prostate cancer may appear to be a certain uh, dimension, and the PSA does not necessarily go up. So nothing is hard and fast in medicine. There is no perfect test. 
And that's something that patients have to understand. No test is perfect. A perfect test would mean that if it's positive, it always detects something. If it's negative, the person doesn't have that. Unfortunately, in medicine, and I can say this as a blanket statement, there is no such thing as a perfect test. So there are tests that are falsely positive. There are tests that are falsely negative. So uh, prostate cancer uh, is an issue because it it's part of aging. If you were to take the prostate, or if you were to, if you wish, remove the prostate of a 95-year-old man, chances are that part of that prostate has cancer. So cancer of the prostate seems to be an increasing inevitability in men as they get older. The question is, uh, what do we use to determine whether or not a person with an enlarged prostate has prostate cancer? And what should we do about it? Should we go in and do an operation? Uh, should we take out the prostate? Should we core out the prostate? So those are things that are continually being evaluated. In the past, a lot of surgery was being done on prostates, uh, some for cancer and some for an enlarged prostate. And now that whole uh, tendency has been re-looked at. Uh, and most urologists nowadays are much more conservative than they used to be and generally recommend to men to wait and watch and wait and not do an operation. The operations generally in the past for an enlarged prostate is an apple core device, which is put in through the hole in the penis and uh, in the operating room, it cores out part of the prostate and enables urine to flow easier. The tissue that's removed is looked at to see if there's cancer. There's cancer operations for the prostate, which involves removal of the entire prostate or most of the prostate. And nowadays what's happened is robotic surgery using robots, which are programmed by the urologist and by a team of individuals uh, work to remove part of the prostate. The question is, should this be done? Are you saving anyone's life by doing a prostate operation? How many men die of prostate cancer? Turns out that the younger the man, the greater the potential for a prostate cancer to be highly uh, invasive, uh, and that is a concern. So young men with prostate cancer generally have a worse prognosis than old men with prostate cancer. Uh, and as I said, it's prostate cancer seems to be an inevitability of aging. And so that is a concern. There are other modalities. There are infrared treatments, uh, ultrasound. There are other different types of ways to try to destroy the prostate gland. One of the big issues for almost everybody involved here is what's going to happen to a given man if he has his prostate operated on. And the biggest concern is erectile dysfunction. The man will no longer be able to have an erection or the erection will be poor. Uh, and so that remains a big issue. And that is something that is difficult to determine uh, be given a given individual. Will that person lose their ability to have an erection? And that is something that needs to be discussed between the doctor and the patient if it's felt that the patient needs an operation. So if a person has an enlarged prostate, 
but they can pee and urinate okay, then that's one thing. But if a person finds that they are not able to urinate well or they can't urinate at all, then a catheter or plastic tube has to be inserted in through the hole of the penis in the urethra and get into the urinary bladder and drain the bladder. Sometimes that catheter has to stay in for several days uh, and with a leg bag attached to a bag around the thigh to drain the urine, which has to be emptied periodically. And then the catheter can be removed to see whether or not uh, the prostate and the bladder will work well without the catheter. Other times the catheter has to stay in because the prostate is too big and the, op the urethra is too, too small. And so that, again, is a determination made by the urologist after he or she sees the patient. So that's what I have to say about prostate cancer. Uh, as, far, as far as prevention, having a PSA test done, having a rectal exam done, are things that are advised that most men should do at least perhaps once every year or every two years. Uh, and that is that diet. We know that fatty food, red meat, uh, and a, a processed rich, uh, processed uh, a diet rich in processed food, chips, and uh, that type of food uh, tends to make uh, a worse situation for the prostate. So that's what I know at this point. And again, I'm not a urologist, but that's an overview of prostate cancer. That's a great overview, Dr. Mankash. So you, do you want to go through the pancreatic overview? Well, the, pan the pancreas is a elusive organ. It's an organ in the shape of a fish with a head, a body, and a tail. It sits behind the stomach. It actually sits behind the belly cavity. It's behind the belly cavity. And it's protected by uh, various connective tissues uh, so that it's sitting behind the belly cavity. The, prost the um, pancreas does two things. It makes enzymes to help digest our food, and those enzymes are released by a canal which has its opening in the duodenum, which is the first part of the intestine. The enzymes are amylase, lipase, and uh, trypsin or chemotrypsin called the proteases. And these three different substances help to digest the various aspects of our food, uh, starches, fats, and proteins. So that's one thing the, the pancreas does. The other part of the pancreas is the endocrine part of the pancreas. This is the part of the pancreas which has cells in it, usually in the tail of the pancreas, that produce hormones. Hormones and enzymes are both proteins, but they act differently. So the major hormones produced by the pancreas are glucagon, which causes the sugar levels to go up uh, after food is eaten, and insulin, which is designed to lower the sugar level uh, after eating food. So the pancreas is a organ that's difficult to evaluate because 
of its location, as I said, behind the belly cavity. So there's no easy way to get to feel it or to touch it because you can't get to it that way. Uh, also, there are no easy tests to check pancreatic function. Uh, so that's another issue. We know that x-rays have been the major modality to evaluate the pancreas, and they include either an ultrasound of the uh, surrounding tissues, the liver, the gallbladder, and the pancreas, which uses ultrasonic uh, radiation to image that particular organ. There's the CAT scan and the MRI, which uses various modalities to image the organ and make it available for imaging by a radiologist to look at the pancreas. And so that's an overview of what the pancreas is about. Uh, the problem with the pancreas is that if a person gets cancer of the pancreas, it's highly malignant. So among the world of cancer, pancreatic cancer is probably the most, one of the most deadly cancers. It's believed that that in part has to do with the fact that the pancreas does not have a sheath around it. So the prostate, the stomach, the colon, they generally are ensheathed with, uh, if you wish, an envelope, which acts to some degree as a physical barrier to keep uh, cancer cells from breaking through into the overall environment. The pancreas, however, does not have that kind of sheath or capsule. So if a cancer develops in the pancreas, it spreads fairly quickly. But the person with this unfortunate situation may not be aware of any abnormality in the pancreas until uh, enough metastatic disease has developed, that is the cancer has spread to other organs and either the cancer itself as a tumor or the cells coming off that cancer in the form of metastasis then begin to affect other organs and then symptoms develop, such as jaundice, itching, weight loss, depression, and uh, loss of appetite, uh, and of course, abdominal pain. So those are some of the general symptoms of pancreatic cancer. Unfortunately, they're very vague, they're not specific, and so by the time a person ends up getting the a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, it's generally, if you wish, quote, too late. That is, the pancreas cancer has already uh, gone to other organs and spread elsewhere. And that remains the major challenge in pancreatic cancer. Uh, recently, I read an article that suggests that having gallstones seems to somehow uh, increase the risk of getting pancreatic cancer. That needs to be further looked at because there's so many people with gallstones. We know that a family history of pancreatic cancer is a major concern. We know alcohol is a major concern because alcohol is a toxin to the body and particularly to the liver and to the pancreas. So a person drinks every day, that alcohol tends to inflame the pancreas called pancreatitis. There's acute and chronic pancreatitis. If the pancreas becomes inflamed repeatedly, chronic inflammation 
is one of the mechanisms by which cancer develops. So going back to the issue of why does a cancer develop, we do know that chronic inflammation uh, when in a given organ, if that organ is continually inflamed, that inflammatory process may change the genetics of some of the cells in that organ and they become malignant. And so again, cancer means that you have cells that are not respecting each other. So imagine for a minute that your neighbor comes to your home and asks you if you could please give them, uh, for example, a stick of butter or a, a piece of watermelon. And then you give that to them. And the next thing you know, they have moved in to your home. And, that, and that's uninvited. And now they're beginning to bring their friends over. And now your home has, instead of you and the person, has 50 friends of that person, then 100 friends. And now your home is being, if you wish, invaded by the friends of that person. So in cancer, the fundamental change in the behavior of the cells to each other is what's going on. And the recognition of that process is one thing to detect it and also then to treat it. So to treat it, you have to understand what it is about those cells that have made them cancerous. And then once you understand what that might be, then you try to attack and kill the cancer. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense. It's very important because uh, one tends to look at things in a general black and white picture, you know, like a like um, I'm trying to think of the correct terminology here, like a bull in a china shop. This is not a bull in a china shop. This is something specific. And understanding the nature of why a cell becomes cancer is the fundamental process by which we're going to destroy and get rid of cancer. And that is a process that's been going on for many, many, many years. And it's going to take a long time. So when people say, can you cure cancer? The answer is we don't know. We just don't know. And so that's important to understand in terms of our approach to cancer. And uh, I hope that gives you some indication. So pancreatic cancer is deadly because it spreads very quickly in the absence of any symptoms. So by the time the person gets symptoms, jaundice, abdominal pain, loss of appetite, weakness, fatigue, and uh, weight loss, by that point, the cancer has already often spread into the liver, into the bile ducts, into the lymph nodes, which is where cancer generally spreads when it goes from one organ to other. elsewhere, it spreads to the lymph nodes. The lymph is the distillation of blood. It's a fluid that bathes the organs. So by the time a person has symptoms and goes to see the doctor, this is often the case. Sometimes a CAT scan or an MRI detects an abnormality in the pancreas that neither the patient nor the doctor ordering it nor the radiologist ever knew that it would be there. So you may get a, a doctor may get a report and abnormality is found in the pancreas. And then that has to be further evaluated with more testing. Okay. So I do have a question about the pancreas. I need to know like, what are the signs and symptoms? Because sometimes the signs, 
you know, the body's not functioning right. So there are signs, but we tend to. I, I, just went, over, I went over those. You went over them. Okay. So what about. Pancreatic cancer. The major symptoms are weight loss, uh, decreased appetite, yellow jaundice, abdominal pain, okay. and depression. For some reason, uh, many people uh, with pancreatic cancer develop depression. Exactly why that happens is it a change in the hormones, the proteins, it's not known. But those are some of the general symptoms. Now remember, these are not specific to pancreatic cancer. You can have a decreased appetite or you can have a loss of weight that has nothing to do with pancreatic cancer. Right. So it makes it difficult to detect pancreatic cancer when it uh, when it's very small, it may not be easy to find. Uh, so we know that, for example, in the colon, there are polyps or pimples, if you wish, in the lining of the colon. They can be detected by a colonoscopy and removed. And so it's believed that in pancreatic cancer, there may be little polyps that develop in the canals that drain the fluid or the secretions of the prostate, of the pancreas. However, when they're small, nobody knows they're there. They may be too small to even be detected by an MRI or a CAT scan. Only when they get enlarged and is something seen on those studies that then raises the concern or the eyebrow of the radiologist looking at them. So many times when pancreatic is, cancer is small and potentially curable, if the person were to undergo surgery, it often eludes those modalities because nobody is aware that it's there. You understand what I'm saying? Yes. So by the time a person is found to have pancreatic cancer, their five-year survival rate, which is the bench, bench benchmark by which all cancer is looked at, how long, how many people will be alive five years after the diagnosis. So the five-year survival rate for pancreatic cancer is probably less than 10%. That means that in five years from the time the diagnosis made, less than 10% of people with that pan with a can pancreatic cancer will be alive. And remember, some there are different types of pancreatic cancer. Some grow very quickly, some grow not so quickly. And within the cancer, some of the cells may grow fast, some of them not prints. Some pancreatic cancers are different than others. They're different histologies, different appearances of the pancreatic cancer. So these are general statements I'm making. And that's unfortunate because of all the GI cancers pancreatic cancer and cancer of the bile ducts are the most deadly because they are not easily detected. And by the time they are discovered, they often have already spread. Okay, Dr. Mankaj, this is so powerful. Great, great information. Um, we're going to take a break so that you could have some something to drink. And then when we get back, we want to talk about some of the type of uh, the surgeries. And I, should, I just say one other thing. Uh, Patients will come to the doctor and say, my mother had pancreatic cancer, or my father had pancreatic cancer, or my brother had pancreatic cancer. What should I do to determine if I have pancreatic cancer or not? And unfortunately, none of the insurance systems will pay for a person to have any studies done, almost ever, if there's a family history of pancreatic cancer. So that is another problem, is the insurance industry and whether or not they're going to allow a given individual, even with a family history, to have testing. Uh, there are very limited numbers of, of, of chemical tests or blood tests 
So this remains an issue on how early we can pick up cancer if the insurance companies will not pay for it or if the modalities of diagnosis are not yet available to us. That's powerful. That's so powerful. Okay, so we'll take a quick break, sir. And um, when we get back, we could go into like pancreatic surgery when the uh, pancreas, we know it has a special function. When you take it out, how it affects the body, when you, you know, different type of surgery and things that has to remove because you want to save the person's life. How does the body function? Okay. You'll let me know when. Okay, sure. Okay. There's a few businesses I want to announce. If you're in the Atlanta, Georgia area and you need an automobile, a used automobile, you want to contact GMD Auto, Auto Mart. GMD Auto Mart. And the number is 678 751 1431. 678 751 1431 GMD Auto Mart. Used cars are available. Glory to God. If you are in the upstate New York area and you're looking for properties, you want to connect with Wynn Morrison Realty all the way in Catskill, New York. And you want to connect me, Sandra Buchanan, 518 267 9181. 518-267-9181 if you want to buy land to build new projects if you want to sell your property you want to buy commercial multi-units if you want to buy storage units whatever way you want to invest now is the time it is a seller's market glory to god so i would be your agent upstate new york downstate new york glory to god you want to connect also, if you're in the upstate New York area and you need a seamstress, you want to connect with Leela Smith. She does dressmaking, tailoring, seamstress. You alter men and women clothing. She also do um, custom made. If you need have fabric, you want to make a fresh outfit. She does that. If you're out of state, you could ship your measurements and the fabric to her. She will get it done. Her name is Leela Smith. And her number is 518-653-0600. Again, 518-653-0600. If you're looking for a caterer for Caribbean dishes, you want to connect with Caribbean Kitchen. And the number is 518-653-3764. 518-653-3764. Three seven six four Caribbean Kitchen. She does catering. If you're having a party or an event and you need some delicious Caribbean meals, you want to connect with Margaret Ryman at Caribbean Kitchen. If you need your car to be detailing, like brand new, you want to connect with Dorian Ryman and Auto Rhyme Car Detailing. Auto Rhyme Car Detailing and his number is five one eight. Six five three three seven six four. If you're looking for a home church to go to in the Hudson, upstate New York area, you don't have a place where you go for fellowship. You can fellowship with us at All Nations Church, Hudson, New York. It's at three eighty nine Fairview Avenue, Hudson, New York. Three eighty nine Fairview Avenue, Hudson, New York. 
and it's right in the Bagel Time Plaza on Fairview Avenue. Our worship time is 3 p.m. every Sunday. 3 p.m. every Sunday. And we have a Bible studies every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. And we also have Bible studies every Thursday night at 7 p.m. So come and fellowship with us at All Nations Church. It is glorious. Glory to God. If you are in the Hudson, New York area and you're looking for a day spa, Serenity Wellness Center Day Spa, a spa like no other, Serenity Wellness Day Spa is also mobile. We could come to you for spa parties. You may be looking for a gift to buy a loved one, a friend, a mother, father, a whoever it is. We sell gift certificates. They're on sale for Father's Day, for Mother's Day, for Easter, for every occasion. Gift certificates are online at serenitywellnesscenterdayspa.com. Again, serenitywellnesscenterdayspa.com. A spa like no other. It's in Hudson, New York. Glory to God. And the website is www.serenitywellnesscenterdayspa.com. Another business I want to announce is Jay's Cuisine. It's a takeout delivery American meals. Jay's Cuisine. And the number is 518-828-1926. Jay's Cuisine, 518-828-1926 in the Hudson area. Welcome back. Glory to God. We are here on Iron Sharpener. I welcome everyone on this broadcast here. We have a board-certified physician here, Dr. Jeff Mancas, retired physician in a gastrointestinal board-certified physician in Hudson, New York, upstate New York. So if you have comments, you could comment us. We are on Facebook. You can comment us. We are on um, YouTube. You could share your comments as well. Glory to God. And we're on the website, ironsharpener.net. Here we're talking about cancer. And he went over the overview of the cancer, different type of cancer, um, the how to detect them. We, he went over prostate cancer. He just went over uh, pancreatic cancer. And the information is so powerful. If you're just here joining us, you could go back when the, when the show is over on Iron Sharpner YouTube page, a video will be there. If you go on ironsharpner.net on the website, all the videos are on the website, ironsharpner.net. We're also on Facebook, Iron Sharpner Facebook. The videos are there. We are so excited for Iron Sharpener. And this show is so unique because it is a show where we bring guests on. If you're, you're talented, if you're created if god has placed a passion in you it could be anything an author a chef a physician whatever gift you have we welcome everyone we're inviting you to come and share your gifting and your talents on the show glory to god and you could type in your questions if you want to advertise your business as you could see we went for a commercial break we will advertise your business if you become a sponsor Glory to God. We are taking sponsorship. If you go to ironsharpner.net website, you should see the requirements to be a sponsor. If you want to just donate something, because we take your widows and orphans around the nations, you could go on a website, ironsharpner.net, and give a donation as low as $5 to take care of one orphan across the nation. 
or you could be a Patreon. We also have a Patreon where you could give a monthly pledge at www.patreon.com slash iron sharpener. Glory to God. So we are taking your donation so that we could continue to give you great show, great information, great videos, great sound. Um, so everything we just have to give in excellence because we serve a God of excellence. Glory to God. And we're so honored to have Dr. Jeff Mankas, board-certified physician, um, one of the very best in upstate New York, to take his time out to come and educate us on, on our GI health. Education is the key. Prevention is the key. How to take care of your body, the temple that God has given you. We have to take care of the temple. And it starts by educating us how to do these things and signs and symptoms to detect what's going on with your body so that you could go and get the help that is needed. Glory to God. So we're just excited. So Dr. Jeff, are you ready to continue, sir? I am. Okay. Thank you so much. So please go into the surgery part. What happened where you have to take the pancreas out? Well, let me first uh, preface anything more by expressing my gratitude to you for allowing me to be on your program. Uh, you're doing a service to the community and uh, by providing information to people. And information is, as you said, is part of what education is about. So I want to thank you for allowing me to be on your program. Thank you very much. You're welcome, sir. Uh, now, as far as the pancreas is concerned, as I've said to you, the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, unfortunately, most of the time is really an elusive one. Sometimes, if, if you want to call it that, luck happens and a pancreatic mass or tumor is found, in, incidentally, on an x-ray study where it was not intended to even be seen. Now, to treat pancreatic cancer, uh, there are different modalities. The ideal treatment, and the one that's been used most often, is surgery, which is to go in, the surgeon goes in, and removes either the tumor in the pancreas or the entire pancreas. Understandably, the statistics that look at this issue are pretty abysmal. As I've said to you earlier, the five-year survival rate for all comers with pancreatic cancer is less than 5%, which is not very good. And that's despite many, many attempts to improve the modalities of diagnosis and or treatment. So approaches to the pancreas can involve opening up the person, exposing the location of the pancreas, and removal of the pancreatic tumor. However, as I've said to you earlier, the pancreas does not have a capsule. So by the time the person goes for surgery, assuming that they're even a candidate for surgery, when the surgeon explores the pancreas, often uh, there is spread already determined at the time of that uh, diagnosis. And as you should be aware, 
surgery has always been first and foremost in the past a diagnosis uh, option and then a therapy option. So sometimes people have surgery done to determine the nature of a thing uh, before they undergo any kind of removal of anything. And that's something to remember. So despite all of the various modalities of uh, diagnosis, x-ray studies usually, sometimes one cannot tell how advanced a particular uh, system might be. And that's often the case with pancreatic cancer. So a person has symptoms or something is found on a study, they go for studies and then they get subjected to a number of radiologic studies, including MRI, CAT scan, ultrasound, endoscopic ultrasound, which is a technique where a scope is inserted down the person's mouth. And this particular scope emits and receives ultrasounds and projects an image, an ultrasonic image, to the doctor doing the procedure of certain organs that are looked at. And obviously the doctor has to be trained to know how to detect, determine, and look at these particular images. And that will tell, tell the doctor whether what's going on with that particular image. So there are different modalities to uh, look at the pancreas, none of which are easy because the pancreas, as I said, uh, is not an organ like the stomach or the colon, uh, which is easily amenable to being evaluated. It's It hides. It's not easy to find. And these are the modalities that are out there, MRI, CAT scan, and ultrasound, and endoscopic ultrasound. Now we'll determine whether or not a given individual might be a candidate. If you were to take all comers with pancreatic cancer to determine whether or not an individual with the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer is a potential candidate for surgical removal, I would say less than perhaps 10% of all the individuals with pancreatic cancer are truly eligible to undergo curative surgery. That is to go in and remove either the whole pancreas or the tumor in the pancreas, which is a very sobering statistic. The majority of people with pancreatic cancer are not amenable to any kind of surgery that's going to cure them or help them. And that, again, is why it remains, without a doubt, the most elusive, the most difficult of all of the GI cancers uh, and remains a major problem in U.S. in public health throughout the world, and particularly in Western Europe and the United States. Going back to your comment about prevention when you opened up this section, I cannot urge again the importance of education of an individual and or their family with respect to recognizing what factors may play a role in the development of cancer. Some of it is luck, and luck we have no uh, clue on. But, for example, we know that a fatty diet is not a good thing to do. We know that eating a lot of red meat and processed meat, sausage, bologna, salami, bacon, these are foods 
that taste good when they go in your mouth, but these are foods that are not good for your health. Alcohol. You know, alcohol is a very strange subject because for many people, alcohol is part of a social network. You drink with your friends. You may drink a glass of wine with dinner, etc. But approximately five years ago, both the American Cancer Society and the American Society of Clinical Oncology, which represents a number of cancer doctors in the United States, independently of each other, ASCO and the ACS, independently of each other, came out over five years ago and said that alcohol is not a good thing. And of course, when a doctor tells that to a patient, uh, then the doctor is perceived of as being, uh, how should we say, raining on someone's parade. And this is often the case. So I would tell patients this, and what they did at home is their business. There's no doubt that alcohol is potentially addictive, that one drink may lead to another drink, and it's made difficult to control that uh, in terms of curbing one's appetites. And if you drink once in a while, it's one thing, but that's always a question. What does it mean once in a while? So drinking alcohol is probably the one preventable thing that a person can do to prevent them from getting cancer anywhere. And in these position statements by the American Cancer Society and the American Society of Clinical Oncology, it was shown that alcohol increases the risk of cancer in many, many organs. The esophagus, stomach, the liver, and even the colon and the pancreas. So if you drink alcohol, uh, you're creating a problem for yourself and for your family because of the sociological implications of drinking alcohol and what it does to a given individual and the relationships that that individual has with their family. I can't emphasize that enough. So that is one factor in a person's life that they have control over and I urge people to avoid alcohol. It may sound like I'm raining on your parade and what's the matter with a drink now and then or a glass of wine with dinner, but it is a problem. And if you look at the data from what I've just said, you will see that I am correct. Alcohol increases the risk of all cancers in all organs. So I urge people to think second before they have that drink. Awesome. I, uh, it's so true. That is a number one downfall, alcohol. Um, yeah, it is, but again, it's part of our society. It's part of the way we uh, look at each other, part of what we do. Of course, now with COVID and the pandemic uh, and the recent recession, which is occurring, and everybody's concerns about money and getting money, making money, having money, a lot of people are not going out and partying. They're not going to restaurants. They're not going out and consuming things outside, but they may be consuming them inside in their own home. So, uh, you know, the only person who has control over their consumption of alcohol is that person. That's true. Is there any other cancer you want to, uh, surgery, surgical procedure you want to talk about? Well, let's go back to the pancreatic cancer. So 
the operation that's done for pancreatic cancer, if it can be done, and as I said, less than 10% of people with pancreatic cancer are even eligible to have an attempt, an attempt at pancreatic cancer therapy, uh, surgery. The operation is called the Whipple operation or pancreatic duodenectomy, where the person has an operation where part of their stomach and the beginning of their intestine, the duodenum, and the pancreas are removed. And then various hookups are made for the bile ducts and uh, whatever the pancreas ducts might have been left, uh, or some people, you live without the pancreas and you take enzymes uh, instead, uh, which will basically give your body the enzymes and or hormones, you become a diabetic if you don't have a pancreas. So you have to take insulin uh, and you also have to take enzymes, pancreatic enzymes, which are available uh, if you have your whole pancreas removed. Uh, this operation remains the standard, but very few of them are successful. When you look at the statistics of the number of people who've had pancreatic cancer that survive the operation, uh, you will be very, very sadly disappointed. And that remains a major problem. So we are far from really being able to get a handle on pancreatic cancer in terms of what causes it other than alcohol and chronic pancreatitis and what can be done to prevent it and what studies are available to detect it early that is approved for by the insurance companies. And we have <coughs> a long way to go with this particular cancer. So just be aware that um, we're fighting an upward battle, but hopefully with time and uh, discovery and the help of the Lord, uh, new, new avenues will open and we'll get a better handle on dealing with this tumor. Awesome. That is so awesome. Um, back to the prostate. If there's, I mean, the last stage cancerous prostate, can you tell us about the surgical procedure for the prostate? Well, I mean, as I said, there are different therapies. Uh, the therapy that had generally been done is a TURP, transurethral prostatectomy, where a operating scope is inserted in through the hole in the penis, uh, that which is the urethra, uh, or leads to the urethra, which leads to the prostate. And then part of the prostate is cored open like an apple core, coring an apple to remove the tissue. That is done generally without knowledge that there's prostate cancer. Uh, but prostate cancer may be determined on the basis of the tissue analysis of the tissue that's found after uh, the, the uh, through the penis operation is done. Operations on the prostate themselves are generally done in which the uh, a robot is used to make incisions into either above the prostate or below the prostate, and then the entire organ is removed. And often the lymph nodes that drain the prostate uh, area are removed as well because prostate cancer does not generally spread far away 
it spreads into the local tissues nearby, including the lymph nodes, it can spread to the bones. So prostate cancer rarely goes to the liver and other places. It generally uh, spreads locally and it spreads potentially into the bones. So the question is whether or not a given individual with prostate cancer will benefit from undergoing anything at all to be done. Is it best to leave things alone? Because many times prostate cancer uh, grows very, very slowly. And so the question is, are you uh, creating a greater harm by doing therapy than you would if you left things alone? And so there's a lot of research being done in the concept of, if you wish, watchful waiting as opposed to going in and winning the battle and losing the war. Is it worth putting a man through major surgery, robotic or otherwise, leaving the person uh, with a certain degree of potential complications and or a long-term sequelae that may not really result in any cure of that person? Will they live longer? Will their quality of life be adequate? So this is a area of research where a lot of work is being done. Years ago, it was simpler. We knew less. We did stuff that might not, might not necessarily have been done. But with time, uh, the conservative approach to prostate cancer seems to gain the upper hand. And many men with prostate cancer will have periodic PSAs or x-ray studies done to monitor uh, the progress of a cancer as opposed to going in and operating and then regretting it later. And that's what I can tell you, although I am not a urologist and I'm not a prostate cancer expert, but in my treatment of patients as an internist, in addition to my gastroenterology practice, I noted that an increasing number of men with the diagnosis of prostate cancer often were just watched and did not undergo any modalities of invasive therapy. Okay. Um, it's very important for me, and that's why I incorporate health into this program, because health, we have to take care of ourselves, and prevention is key. Dr. Mankaj, my grandfather died of prostate cancer. Well, prostate, why... cancer, prostate cancer tends to be, and I don't know the statistics fully, but I know that's more common in black men than in white yes. men. That yes. I know. Yeah. So that, that's an issue. Years ago, you talk about years ago, but he never had the testing. Is it a PCA, I believe? PSA. Yeah, he yeah, never did the testing. And when he got sick and went to the doctors, it was too late. So for these things that is so preventable, you know, we just have to embrace our body and embrace these tests. Well, people, people don't like doctors and they're scared of doctors. They respect doctors uh, because doctors... Uh, treat them and to and try to cure them, but nobody wants to go to a doctor. It's not fun. There, everybody's afraid that something bad's going to be found. Usually, cancer. So everybody's frightened, and so uh, the doctor recognizes most doctors that they're uh, not necessarily the same as going out to a party or being with your pal, uh, and so uh, the 
relationship of a given individual with a doctor is unique to that relationship. Some patients are comfortable with doctors and don't fear them. Other people can't stand doctors. They don't want to be near them. To them, they're, uh, if you wish, uh, potential uh, sources for difficulty. And so these are all play a role uh, in the way in which the doctor is perceived. And just like teachers, teachers are, uh, in the past, were just taken for granted. Uh, and still is the case. Doctors have experienced an increasing amount of hostility, indifference, and uh, basically a lack of support by the public. Everybody wants a doctor that will do everything they can for them, but they don't want to have to involve themselves with anything the doctor tells them to do. So it's a strange relationship that a given individual has with a doctor, uh, and that remains a problem. Uh, the, 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 the society and the insurance companies uh, see the doctor as a necessary evil, so to speak, to take care of the patient, so to speak, uh, and the payment for the to the doctor often has decreased continuously over time. So the doctor's work is decreasingly valued over time. An increasing number of allied health professionals are taking the care of patients, nurse practitioners and um, physician's assistants. Uh, and so with time, we have seen and are going to see even more so a reduction in the number of available primary care doctors for adults. And that's fading out. As Bob Dylan said, you don't need a weatherman to tell you which way the wind is blowing. And Amen. so uh, what's happening is that the traditional doctor doing an office home visit or office visit, this is disappearing. The electronic health record, the computer, uh, all this has taken over the way the relationship between the patient and the doctor. And so the doctor has to see a certain number of patients, so to speak, and the patient wants to get a maximum amount of exposure to the doctor and picks the doctor's brain for information. So these are diametrically opposed to each other. And so unless you're very fortunate, uh, the given individual may have a relationship with a doctor that's less than optimal. The doctor is often overwhelmed because that doctor has to see a certain number of people and only a limited amount of time is allowed for that particular relationship. A lot of the time the doctor spends on the computer because the computer uh, provides the information necessary for the uh, employing institution to bill. And again, everything's money. So uh, the doctor spends a significant amount of time on the computer to document the, the interaction uh, that the doctor has with the patient, put in all the numbers, put in all the codes, put in all that stuff, and that takes a lot of time. And so the actual quality time, if you wish quality time spent between patient and doctor is increasingly reduced. And that remains the problem with the system as it is. But unless and until the coding and the electronic health record changes, this is the way things are. And so there's a lot of inherent distrust and inherent dislike in this system the way it's currently set up.
Awesome. So, Dr. Michaels, we ran out of time today. You have over an hour. Thank you so much. And the information is so rich and it's so fulfilling that we have to have you back on to talk about cancer and surgery and all these great things next month. Glory to God. Again, I want to reiterate my profound thanks to you for allowing me to uh, broadcast whatever I have to say. I try to be uh, ma ma point, point the information uh, that's educational to your uh, listening public. And uh, I don't, uh, I try, the only position I'm taking is advocacy for the, pay, the health of the patient. And I'm so glad that you mentioned the idea of prevention. Preventive medicine is what it's all about. And if doctors spent more time uh, educating patients, prevention. that would be very important. Of course, the doctors have to, have to educate themselves about nutrition, lifestyle, et cetera, yes. and not just give people numbers. The doctor has to be involved intimately with treating the patient properly. That's true. Treating them in excellence. Everything we do have to be in excellence, and you are definitely one of them. Well, really that's very kind of you to say. Uh, and I yes. appreciate the opportunity to speak to uh, your audience. If they have any questions, they can send them to you. I'll try to answer them, but again, I cannot get involved with the individual aspects of a given person's uh, medical care. I can talk th about things in a general way. Thank, Thank you for your so time. Much. Thank you so much. I just want to welcome all my viewers and ironsharpner.net. If you'd like to be a sponsor, support this work, you could um, go to the website, ironsharpner.net, and make your donation on the website ironsharpner.net so that we could continue to have great educational videos, everything. There is a cost to do everything. There's a cost for, for excellency. And also we're a non-for-profit organization. We have a 501c3 business. Iron Sharpener is the voice of Sitkinu International Outreach Ministry. This ministry is, is a foundation to run, to raise funds for widows and orphans internationally to raise funds for in orphans and widows. So we need your support, become a sponsor, become a Patreon and go on the website and um, donate at ironsharpner.net. And you could also um, send in your, your, your monthly pledge here, patreon.com slash ironsharpener, as low as $5, you can't get it any better than that. We just go by what you can afford so that the videos continue to be in excellence and that we take care of the fatherless and the widows. Go to ironsharpner.net. You could use your Visa, MasterCard, credit card there, and also to Patreon here. ironsharpner.net, all the videos are there. You could go back as far as one year. This show is one year in August. So I really thank God for what he is doing on this show to educate, to empower, to sharpen. And I really thank God for Dr. Manka's board certified because he run with the vision and he said, I want to be a part of this. I want to give back to the community. So thank you again, sir. So have a great day. Thank Dr. Mankos, and we'll see you next month. Glory to God. Take care. Have a good day. Have Bye. a good day. Bye.